Welcome to Constantinople, a podcast of the St. Constantine School, where we have great conversations in a great city. This is Kate Gilbert, Head of Academics for St. Constantine, and I'm here with Dr. John Mark Reynolds. For St. Constantine, personally, did he come and, yes, you will help me yes. with that. He's kind of dead and stuff. So the St. Constantine School is a very long title, long and we don't have a good shortened version We, we yet. don't. Like, for example, if you say TSCS, it sounds like a T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis mashup. That is school. okay, though. Which that would sounds be a, good. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great school. No, I'm John Mark Reynolds. <laughs> I am the sometime president of the St. Constantine School. And I'm here with <laughs> Robert Stacy, provost at St. Constantine. And Megan Muller, also at St. Constantine, in the capacity of the Director of Operations and Development. Mm-hmm. Wow. Everyone seems to work at the same place on this podcast related to the school. Quite a coincidence. <laughs> it is an amazing coincidence. What are we discussing today, Kate? Well, in future, we're going to be talking about some of the ideas that come out of the books that we read every day in the school. So in the future, we'll have interesting yes, podcasts. Yes, but yeah. we wanted to sort of set the foundation for that by discussing why we do school the way we do at all. Um, so a broad question is, what is classical education and why do it at all? Uh, actually, that is a good question, mm-hmm. and it has to do with ideas. Robert, you're the academic guy. <laughs> what so is, like the rest so of us. The rest of us just do work. <laughs> Tell us what we're doing, Robert. Yeah, classical education has been with us a long time. You know, as the name implies, it, it has an ancient history. Uh, but it's not – that doesn't mean that it's stale and, and irrelevant. Uh, it's the education that, that great leaders have had for centuries. So why wouldn't that change? I mean, I'll be the devil's advocate. I've done this all my life. But why wouldn't it change? Because I think human nature doesn't change, you know, mm-hmm. because God's created order doesn't change. And understanding those kinds of principles is essential in any generation. So mm-hmm. I've heard someone say George Washington had to govern a country of three million, roughly, yeah. something like that. Who knows? I, the next president will have to govern a country of 360 million. Surely we need a different education for that bigger project than we needed in, you know, 1789. I'll take a step at that. Um, I think there's a quotation from Stratford Caldecott's book, The Beauty and the Word. He says that, paraphrasing roughly, that we're not supposed to teach students how to do. We're supposed to show students how to be. Mm. So, um, I've never read the job description for the president as it was drafted for George Washington, <laughs> but uh, I imagine that though some of the particulars may have changed in uh, type, they haven't changed in kind. Hmm. So if you're going to educate people to do things, uh, technical schools will do that for sure, you. Sure. Uh, I would like a president to be able to know how to manipulate an Excel document and <laughs> you know do other things like that. But uh, you know, as far as educating someone to be the sort of person that can be the president. I don't see, I, I would be, I would be sad to hear, to learn that that process right. for the president of the United States had changed from the excellent example of George Washington. Mm-hmm. You make a great point. And you know, the to do changes sometimes in ways we can't possibly anticipate. Mm-hmm. So if it's just sort of a simple vocational, here are the 10 things you need to learn to do. What if there's a 12th and a 13th and a 14th thing that pops up? We're ill-prepared. Or George, half those 10 become irrelevant. Become irrelevant. George sure. W. Bush is an interesting example of that. He set out to be the education president like his dad, uh, compassionate conservatism, faith-based works. Let's uh, pass No Child Left Behind with the Democratic Congress. He was the guy who could get things done in Washington. And then 9-11 occurred. And of course, nobody predicted that, uh, really. 
And suddenly he was a wartime <laughs> president. And right. safe to say, what everyone thinks of what he chose to do, the rest of his presidency really was consumed by Afghanistan, Iraq, the war on terror, and how it was perceived to have gone. Nothing else really matters. If you think about the Bush presidency, you don't think what he intended to do. You think what he ended up having to do. And I think that's interesting. You know, most of us are never going to run for president, but most of us are going to have seven different careers over the course of our lives, not just jobs, careers. We're going to have to switch around. Mm. And if you work in HR, with the exception of very specialized jobs like law and medicine, uh, most of us, most of the jobs we have don't require the exact skills we learned in college. Uh, if we can read well, write well, think well, we're numerate, and we have good character, we'll probably be able to master most of the jobs mm. out there. And we better be able to because we're going to have to. It's interesting that you mentioned that because, I mean, classical education, obviously, we're talking about it sort of as a foundation um, and a pillar of education. Uh, the two professions you mentioned are two of the three that would be considered professions anyway. They were the right. only three professions. You could be a, a doctor, you could be a lawyer, or you could be a minister. But anything else that you did didn't require the sort of technical education. Mm. So they weren't even considered professions. Yeah, um, if, if you talk to attorneys, sometimes they still call themselves, you know, the professionals because there technically are the three Obviously, the world has changed. There are more, you know, technical positions and things that people can do with their lives that require the sort of specialized knowledge. But if we still believe that education is good for as many people as can get it, the type of education that those people should be getting should probably reflect what people have been doing. Well, let me see how important that is. I'm the oldster here at 52, which means I lived through the computer revolution, including in high school. And my private Christian school was very intent on making sure that we were introduced to these new things called computers. Now, safe to say, every single thing I learned was a waste of time. Because nothing, you know, Commodore Basic is no longer used. Commodore 64 had 32K of usable memory. Uh, I had to type in my <laughs> own programs to make it go. The truth is what my Christian school fundamentally did for me was teach me to read books and enjoy them or contribute to that. Uh, gave me good math skills. Uh, really tried to instill character. And I had a teacher that worked on my writing morning, noon, and night. I can't cover from some disabilities, still can't spell well. Thank goodness for spell checker. But notice the very specific things I learned in school, I graduated in 1981, are almost entirely useless and dated. Everything I learned that's classical, mm -hmm. I've used every day of my life. I think we should talk um, about what it is that you will learn at a classical school but before we do that, I, I want to kind of add to what we've been saying, um, something that I've been talking a lot about with potential faculty for St. Constantine, especially those who don't come from a classical education background and are wondering what makes this different. I think often classical programs or schools are mistaken to emphasize most of all what you uh, study on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. I think the major difference that sets us apart is why we do it. Yes. Um, so rather than having students, um, you know, knowing we've succeeded, if students reach a certain uh, data set of competency points or they make a certain goal on an SAT or any other standardized test, those things will happen. But it's not why we educate. We right. educate for virtue and we educate for wisdom. We want to create the kind of people who are wise and who are good. And school is about that from when you get there in the morning 
to when you leave in the afternoon from when you're in kindergarten to when you're in 12th grade or college. That's why uh, all of what we do read, study, revolves around Christianity, around uh, the Word of God, the Bible, around the history of the church, around ideas that come out of Christianity, because we think it's the central unifying force in life. Uh, I love Plato. Mm -hmm. I think Plato, you should read Plato. It's an essential part of a good education. You could... I think, get a good Christian education in principle without ever reading Plato. Mm. Uh, because there are other great books out there that you could read and study and have the kind of character-building discussions that we would have at the St. Constantine School. I don't think you can become a good person and not know Jesus at the deepest level. Mm. Uh, I think you can be decent. I know people that are more decent than I am who are not Christians, who are not religious believers, don't even believe in God. But I don't think you can become good and find the deepest level of truth and beauty. So I think you're exactly right, Cade. In some ways, we could do what we do with just the Bible and the teachings of the church, you know, uh, reading or, a good theologian. Or maybe even more controversial with your everyday textbooks. Yes. That's it a, would be hard, but it I would think be we hard. could do it. Yeah, that's right. It, it's a mistake, in other words, to focus on the content of the curriculum and if people don't believe that, think back to 10th grade and ask, what do I remember specifically from 10th grade? Mm -hmm. I remember awesome teachers who mentored me. Uh, I remember playing soccer. I remember being in a play. Uh, I remember enjoying class, and I'm sure I have some skills that I picked up in 10th grade. Factually, I'm not sure I remember anything from 10th grade. Uh, that's 42 years ago, you know, it, not quite, but uh, you get the point. So I think content matters. We'll have matter, strong yeah. content uh, because if you're going to wrestle with something, wrestle with the best things. But that's not the focus as much as producing a person who's well-ordered, happy, flourishing. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob, you've done this for a long time. What, how does that strike you? I, we don't want to go too far with this, right? The phone sure. book isn't equal to Plato. No, it's not. Leading no, a discussion. It's not. And, and, and they don't exist anymore anyway. Sure. And you're right. Defaulting to the best is, can, doesn't sound like that can ever be the wrong thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, But you're right. Ultimately, it's about helping stu students become adults who can make good decisions, who can... And I'd go even further than that. It's about creating a generation of people who can also be leaders because, frankly, not everybody gets this education. I wish they could and did, but they won't. And so, you know, those people who do have that advantage of sort of seeing the created order in its entirety more thoroughly, uh, that's that's going to be significant in the next generation. Mm. I, I think I would just say, don't you want your student, don't you want to be able to follow an argument? So I spend a lot of time on social media having discussions with people that matter about politics, about social issues. But forget about all that. What about just marriage and family? Mm -hmm. When I run into marriage troubles and I can't carry on a good conversation and I don't have the vocabulary to put my 52-year-old problems in 52-year-old words, mm -hmm. I've still only got seventh grade words like hot or not, or I like you, I don't like you. Uh, or something like that. I can't solve my 52-year-old problems mm -hmm. with seventh grade vocabulary because I haven't grown up intellectually. And so I think classical education, at least in principle, equips a kid to be a good husband or wife mm -hmm. uh, because it helps them grow up. It gives them a platform where uh, when I take a hope out on Valentine's Day, I hope we have a better time in some ways, Kate, than you have mm -hmm. when you go out with David. You're in your, what, third month? Mm -hmm. of marriage when yeah. you go out at Valentine's Day. 
Otherwise, what's the glory of living? <laughs> just being, ah, oh, we're so tired. Yeah. No, yeah. no, it no. gets better because you have the foundation to build that on. Yeah, and I think you also, um, I, my husband's very good at this. He And he was just giving some philosophy lectures where he talked about, he thinks that philosophy appropriately needs to come from a place of wonder um, rather than a, a whole host of other motivations, right, that it could be terrible. Um, but we want to cultivate the kind of students who are curious enough who wonder at the world enough that they do grow until they die, that they are curious about the things around them. They're curious about their future husbands and wives, the lives of their children, the, the word of God. The curiosity that they develop also allows you to, and it, it's a benefit of the classical education and especially of the canon of texts that our students will be reading. Um, it allows you to not be a slave to your time mm. also. Right. So, mm. You know, if you read the Aeneid, um, you can read Dido and Aeneas's relationship and learn a lot about the human heart and who's to blame when things go wrong. Um, just we were talking about marriage and Valentine's Day and things like that. Um, but it allows students to see problems that humans have always dealt with in a perspective that's not as narrow as just what they've experienced, what people around sure. them are experiencing, so that when they are sort of approaching the life that they're living in the world that they live in with this kind of curiosity, they can question the things that everyone around them is doing and the reasons that they're doing them because they're able to look at things from a perspective that's sort of elongated by, you know, the greatest works in human history. There's a reason that people are still talking about these books now. It's not just because we're a bunch of troglodyte fuddy-duddies who think that, you know, you should only read Plato and, you know, modern (laughs) philosophy has nothing to offer. We read these books because people have continued to read these books because they continue to be relevant in ways that allow you to step outside Mm -hmm. of the constraints of your own time, the technologies, the fads, the modes of thought that come and go that Mm -hmm. are in vogue. It allows you to see things outside of that yeah, I just think of it sort of as an intellectual slavery. And I think young people are especially susceptible to it. And if sure, you're, yes. if you're especially susceptible to it as a young person, I meet plenty of adults who I think, okay, you're older, but nothing has changed in the way that you were talking about, John Mark, about sort of, you know, aging while still maintaining the intellectual rigor of a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. You've got to grow past that. When, I, so yesterday I was in class with, we were only doing two classes for a group of students who wanted to join a little early, but, um, we were discussing sense and sensibility. Everybody in the room except for me was 16 or 17. Eventually, Ian, Dr. Reynolds' son, joined us. At, he's 21. Um, but we were talking about something that I think could engage us all. Because rather than just talking about the technique of Jane Austen, though we could have, it's really interesting, we, we discussed what are the characteristics of a fool? Or when do you need to control or even hide your emotions? When is that wise? When is it better to follow them? Um, what do our emotions tell us about goodness, if anything? Um, these are, these are questions that I hope our students will return to again and again and again. Austin helps us think about those things. Absolutely. But two years ago when they were freshmen reading Plato, Plato helped us think about those things too. And if we, the richness of these texts and of this method is that 
the big questions get tapped over and over and over again in a way that never gets ex- so never gets if I old. were a parent I'd ask well what about you know practical things like vocabulary for the SAT because mm-hmm. my kid has to go to college maybe they don't want to stay and do K through 16 at the St. Constantine school even if they should uh, <laughs> maybe they're going to go somewhere else and I think the answer to that is is really pretty simple uh, there was a time in our lives when we were children where we learned without knowing we were learning mm-hmm. and we enjoyed learning because learning was like play. Mm-hmm. Now, learning can't always be play. There, there are some skills even to play well that are rigorous. So when I was learning to play soccer, I had to discipline myself. And there were parts of that that was unpleasant. It was unpleasant to learn. Notice that when your students were reading Austin, we didn't have a little moment called vocabulary. Right. But if they had worked through Austin with meaning, or if they're talking to an adult who decides to use quote unquote big words or SAT words, uh, our students will come out much better on the SAT generally because they actually have reading comprehension. They didn't go to an SAT prep class mm-hmm. and try to fake their way through a standardized test. They actually <laughs> are the students that standardized tests were designed to measure, <laughs> namely truly literate students. Right. And what that's measuring is critical thinking. And this is this is one of my biggest plugs of classical education to parents that are sort of looking at it, their education of their students from a pragmatic perspective. Mm-hmm. The SAT and all these tests now, they're not measuring content memorization. They're measuring your student's ability to synthesize information on the fly. Right. It's about right. critical reading, critical thinking, and being able to pull that together. That's something that oral examinations teach you in a way that I don't mm. think anything else will. If you can sit in a room with someone and do sort of what we're doing now, speak well and concisely with, with tangible examples about a thing, <laughs> When you haven't been able to prepare for it, you haven't been asked to memorize it. If you can do that, that's the sort of flexibility. It's sort of ironic because it, again, it keeps your education outside of time. You're not a slave to the time that you live in. Hmm. If you are educated classically so that you're able to do these things, reading well, writing well, thinking well, speaking well. If you can do those things, it gives you the sort of flexibility that's the reason why people are surprised when English majors actually are very highly valued in the job market. It's because their their degree isn't a slave to a certain discipline or a certain style of textbook or a certain computer program that we're all using right now. It actually teaches you the flexibility that means that as the world changes, which it surely does in some ways. We know that, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have the flexibility that's necessary to adapt to any situation. And it's sort of funny that you're getting that from a classical, ancient style of education. But mm-hmm. I think it actually makes students more flexible than anything that sure. I've seen come well, out of Well, that's how it got to be classical, right? <laughs> right. I think a lot of fads that we don't remember came and went in sure. the meantime. Yeah, it's. I get asked this a lot. Old books weren't better than new books. It's just the garbage has disappeared mm-hmm. because nobody bothered. I mean, if you think about what we call classical music, uh, my wife could quickly pull out lots of rotten uh, music, music from the old music mm-hmm. from the same period. Uh, no one much plays it or thinks about it except historians because no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a reason we play the Messiah a lot or Handel survived pieces of Handel, not all of Handel, the Messiah unless, you're going to, <laughs> unless you're going to study him because yeah. the very best of a culture survives time. Put another way, if you think back at young John Mark in high school in 1981, uh, what helped me get my first job might have been the quote-unquote practical things. But New Covenant Christian School, because they focused on classical Christian education, helped me get my third, fourth, fifth, sixth, Mm -hmm. seventh, eighth job uh, down the line. In other words, they stayed part of me. Now, I want us to, um, I know we've sort of been like, 
giving people the fire hose about what <laughs> classical education Hooray! is because we're so passionate about it. Yeah. Um, I want us to co- kind of go back a little bit and talk exactly about what we do in the school, about some of the methods, because even though I said at the beginning, you know, it's not the methods, it's the why. Um, we've spent a lot of time thinking about our methods. Um, the last few months of mine have been dedicated to finding the very best way to build vocabulary in your first and second grader, to teach them music literacy, to find a math program that keeps them energized and interested all the way through AP calculus. Um, And then I know we've mentioned several times this canon of great books that sort of ends up being the ultimate goal. Um, For us, it is what the high schoolers do with a good uh, amount of their time. And junior hires, too, they'll they'll start getting into it. And then our college students will do it all over again in a deeper fashion. So um, maybe some of us could talk about some of the um, methods or classes or even curriculum that we're using in the school. So I'll tell you, say two short things to tee this up at my level, as the level of the president. Mm-hmm. First part of my job is to say this. What are the basic skills that every human being who's well-educated should have? Mm-hmm. And let's make sure we do those. And we've, we've kind of listed those. We think someone should be able to read well. Uh, in at least one language, probably two. Mm-hmm. By the time they graduate from college, surely two. The second thing, so words matter. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that we think numbers matter. Right. That a right. student should be numerate by the time they graduate from high school, and surely even more numerate by the time they come out of college. And finally, they should be able to um, both communicate and integrate what they know into a wise life. That kind of gets to what your virtue. Sometimes yeah. we call that speak well. But I guess maybe live well, <laughs> where it's not detached. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll leave that alone. A lot of it comes down to that. You know, the practical things are what will endure? Mm-hmm. What can we say to them that might matter 50 years from now when I'm dead, surely? And this kindergartner is about my age. Mm. And it's not all grandiose. You know, I was thinking about this with the, with the Jane Austen example, yeah. um, talking about, you know, f- being a fool and love and all those things. Like I can see a very simple, you know, 300 word writing assignment, you know, a question that could be asked of your students that they have to write on is, you know, what would Jane Austen think of Snapchat? (laughs) It's in their, it's a thing they think about. It's a thing that probably Mm -hmm. most of them know about. They might use it. It's relevant to the conversation, but it also starts to make students think about applying what they're learning in the classroom, which can sort of feel like these big ideas that you sort of leave at the door, you know, you check in with your bag and when you leave, you leave what you've been working on out, you know, in the classroom. But when you, you know, and you don't have to do that with older students if they get in the practice of this, but it actually starts to make students apply the concepts that you're thinking about in the classroom to sort of the problems and issues and questions that are sort of cropping up in their mm-hmm. life at, well, normally. And, and that's, a, that's a benefit of, you know, a classical education where you can spend a ton of time th- talking about the big ideas. And you don't ever have to take it down to that granular level. But that's yeah. sort of just a crummy, tangible example of a way that a classical education can use a simple writing assignment to not tell a student, now here's what we think about Snapchat. Mm. it's to say, you've done all this hard intellectual work today. What do you think of what's going on in your life based on the the things that you now believe are true? For a first grader, of course, that may uh, come through active play, through experiential play. Mm -hmm. That also leads to the ability to form letters to make words. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you're to fifth grade, you might, I might be sitting and talking to a student about forming a good paragraph. Mm -hmm. And then when you're talking to 10th graders, 
you might be talking about what's a strong five-paragraph essay? How can you write a, a blog post that's persuasive to other people? Other what does than, an argument you know, look what's like? What's an argument right. look like? Mm-hmm. And so some of it will be very mechanical, especially early on. But the idea of a classical education is to get the mechanical mastered and out of the way as quickly as possible so we can get to the human <laughs> things. But it doesn't ignore, you know, obviously a kid has to learn to read yeah. if they didn't come, sure. you know, knowing how to read when they come. And our students will be taught that. Uh, if you're just starting Spanish one, you know, let's say in fifth grade or fourth grade, third grade, uh, you're going to have to start first at grade. the first grade in our case. <laughs> sorry. Uh, you have to start at the very beginning. But our goal isn't to stay at the very beginning. It's to right. get as quickly as possible to reading real Spanish books. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I think I appreciate, I, I know some, there can be this perception of classical education that we're almost a little cavalier about what curriculum we, we use. or um, I think that's distinctly untrue. Um, classical education is grounded in the physiological, psychological development of the child right. and thinking about what is right for them right then. And so our first graders will play more than a lot of children do because we know it's right for them. Um, science will look a lot like play. Math will look a lot like play. There'll be just some play, you know, yeah. stories and, will be the stories for them. But we do it all yeah. with a reason right. because right. we know where they're at and what the best best methods of developing them to where they need to be by the time they're in high school or getting ready for college. That's not inconsistent where we started, because I can imagine somebody listening and saying, well, they were kind of cavalier at the beginning. No, uh, Paul will say. Uh, there's a better way, mm-hmm. and then there's the way we have to walk. Uh, we never want the better way to become the enemy of the way we have to walk. Mm-hmm. So uh, the truth of it is we have to do the practical things the best we know how. Mm-hmm. But uh, the nice thing about the St. Constantine School is we want to get the big picture right. We want to see yes. the North Star so that we're going north, that we're going the right way, that we're heading towards God's kingdom. Uh, the practical ways of doing it, we'll think about really hard and make sure they're right. Mm-hmm. And so if we sound light or cavalier about them, it's because most schools don't see the North Star. Right. right. Even if they have the same mechanisms that we use. You can use all the right mechanisms, but if you're trying to go north and you don't know which way north is, Absolutely. it's not helping you at all. Right, right. Every day when we start class, we know where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so sometimes people will say, wow, that's an open-ended question. How do you know, you know, our kids just going to go to your class and they can all become atheists? Well, if you can come to a place like the St. Constantine School, so deeply filled with the Orthodox Christian faith and become an atheist, wow, I don't know what I can tell you. Uh, because Perhaps it was God's will. Because we know where we're going. We don't have to announce where we're going in every single class. Uh, we don't have to say to first graders, we're learning to form letters well because God cares about precision. No, we might. Mm-hmm. But I doubt first graders care. But we know why we're doing it. And that's what matters. Right. Hmm. Well, thank you, all of you today, for talking about this. Um, if you want... Uh, if you would like to read more about what we think about classical education, you can check out our blog at the St. Constantine.org 
Does it have a is it backslash blog? I don't no, even know. Just okay, click just and scroll. Click and find. You'll find it eventually. It will be backslash blog. And Saint um, is spelled out S A I N T Constantine dot org. Yeah, and um, in future podcasts, if we can convince Bob, we're going to be talking about Frankenstein. Prepare <laughs> 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 yourself. Fuck. How did this? It's not even near Halloween. How did this? Happen? It's a long tale. It's, we're, yeah, we're you'll have to tune in to, to hear yeah. the problems. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This has been Constantinople, a podcast of the Saint. Constantine School.